basically they try to identify the party with the nation. So if you're critical of the party, you must by definition be anti-Chinese. You can't be patriotic and critical of the Chinese Communist Party. But related to that, there's a kind of historical storytelling, which we're seeing, of course, with this being the 100th anniversary. And this is of the glorious history of the Chinese Communist Party. And Xi Jinping has spoken frequently now on the need to get a correct party history understood by the people and to criticize what he calls historical nihilism, which, of course, is anything that doesn't agree with that official party history. Next month, the Chinese Communist Party will celebrate its 100th birthday. From its humble Soviet-supported beginnings and its existential struggles with the Chinese nationalists to the excesses of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution to its emergence as a global economic superpower with a growing middle class, Harvard Kennedy School professor Tony Sage has made a career studying its history and its inner workings. Over the last century, he says the party has shown a remarkable ability to survive, adapt, and maintain control of a country that is poised to become a military and geopolitical superpower as well as an economic one. Understanding China's politics is crucial for the future of everything, from the world economy to the climate crisis to international human rights. Professor Sage, the director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School, has written a new book due out next month called From Rebel to Ruler, 100 Years of the Chinese Communist Party. He's here with us to talk about how to understand the party's past and how that understanding can contribute to better relations with China in the future. I'm your host, Ralph Rinelli, and welcome to PolicyCast. Tony, welcome. I was hoping we could start by going back to the beginning, because these days many people think of the Chinese Communist Party as this all-powerful entity that's built an economic juggernaut and that can do things like control access to the internet for over a billion people. Yet you say that back in its early days, the party faced seemingly impossible odds just to survive. What happened in those early years and how did it survive? Yeah, whatever one thinks of the Chinese Communist Party, it's an extraordinary story. First of all, it probably shouldn't really have existed in the first place. It was only with considerable Soviet support that it got off the ground. It was almost destroyed in 1927 when its erstwhile partners in the nationalist movement decided that rather than them being squeezed like a lemon, as Stalin said, they would squeeze the communists. And then it survived another civil war. It survived, you know, the invasion from Japan, and then eventually conflict uh, once more with the nationalists between forty-five and forty-nine. And if we wrap all of that together, there were just certain moments where its survival looked improbable, or at least if it was going to survive, it wouldn't necessarily emerge as the dominant force in the Chinese political system. And yet it did. And it's testament to a number of things. One is its ability to be flexible, to adapt to changing circumstances. It didn't cleave closely to a vigorous interpretation of Marxism or Leninism. It was willing to work with bandits, with you know different gangs and groups if necessary. It was uh, willing to make unholy alliances to keep itself going. But it always had the eye on the prize. And the prize, of course, being the ruling party within China. 
And then there's no doubt that uh, the Japanese invasion helped the Chinese Communist Party. It wasn't the sole reason for its victory, but it was slowly being squeezed by the nationalist forces before the Japanese invaded. And that meant the nationalists had to turn their attention away from extinguishing the communist threat to working supposedly together with the communists to uh, resist the Japanese. And that allowed the Chinese Communist Party to rebuild. It allowed them in many ways to protect their armies while the nationalist armies were taking the battering uh, from the Japanese and begin to put together strategies for what they saw as the inevitable civil war that would follow. And then luck happens. I mean, basically, the nationalists were incompetent. They made a number of very severe mistakes once civil war started, which meant that most of their elite troops got cut off in the northeast of China, which then allowed the Chinese communists to begin to infiltrate further down through the country. So it's a remarkable story. It encompasses things like the, the Long March, which is probably best known to most people, where you know they covered something like 6,000 miles in a certain number of days and set out with almost 100,000 and finished up with six or seven or 8,000 by the time they reached their destination, not actually knowing where that destination was going to be. So whatever one thinks of it, it is a most extraordinary story. You mentioned that one of the ways the Chinese Communist Party has survived has been its ability to adapt. And that theme runs throughout your book. But it also seems like a bit of a contradiction. The stereotype of a communist regime is an organization that's very rigid. And China has certainly had those periods during the 20th century. Can you talk a little bit about that concept of adaptation and how the party evolved and grew over the years? Yes, I mean, it's an interesting question, because when we think of Leninist organizations, we always tend to think of them as not being flexible, not being very adaptable. And we have sort of in our mind the vision of a Brezhnev-type Russia slowly melting away because of its institutional rigidity that can't adapt to the changing circumstances around it. And certainly before 1949, China was very adept at doing that, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, And where it was extremely successful was not where it let ideology dominate its local policy. It was really where it was good at micropolitics. So where it was willing to work with local communities, form alliances with local communities that enabled it to thrive and survive. And that really was a lesson that it took initially with it into the post-1949 period, where it tried to build a broad sort of framework for an alliance with different groups in society to rebuild the war-torn economy. But then it forgot those lessons. And then what we see happening through the mid-50s, Mao and perhaps others around him getting impatient. We're not getting the socialism quick enough. We've got to move fast. We've got to move faster. And you see this incredible push to try and speed up the transition to socialism, which in part results first in the Great Leap Forward, the communization program, so forth, which amounted in probably some 30 million deaths because of the bad policies that were applied at that time. Some of it was due to famine, but primarily it was because of policy mistakes that were made. You could call that adaptability, if you like. I mean, it was a different kind of communist party that was meant to be mobilizational. And then, of course, while that had a huge economic impact, you had then the Cultural Revolution, which started in 1966. And by that time, Mao had become convinced with his own paranoia that the party was full of capitalist rotors 
one of whom is Deng Xiaoping, of course, we now associate with the reform period, but also Mao's number two, Liu Shaoqi, who died in prison, uh, ignored uh, during the Cultural Revolution. And Mao felt that the party was being derailed or the revolution was being derailed and that China was slowly but surely, or perhaps even quickly, heading back down the road towards capitalism. Now, he couldn't win in the party. So again, an extraordinary adaptability. He basically let the party unravel and unleashed the young people in China. Their chance now to join in a revolution, overthrow the power holders, take power from outside. Let's get us back on the revolutionary course. And of course, once it started in chaos, the party was in tatters. He couldn't turn to that. So he turned to the military to start bringing order back in again. And the military dominance in the system was very strong from really the late 60s through into the 1970s. So I think there's two things one can say from that. That was adaptability, but it was pretty bad adaptability. But I think it also has a caution in the present day because there is now this sort of growing idea that somehow authoritarian regimes can get things done better than democracies. And that, I think, is very sort of strong sentiment, which is coming out now. And we see it, of course, China playing up to that with the way it dealt with COVID. It was the force of the system that let it spread in the first place. But then they claim, of course, it was our system that was able to bring it control. Well, that's a plus side. But what happened in the Great Leap Forward in the Cultural Revolution is the negative side. Same party and the same kind of authoritarian leadership, which led China into two sets of disasters. So I think we have to be very careful when we think about what is the authoritarian advantage in decision making. Yep, it can go extremely well if it's on the right course, but it also can go extremely badly. I think the second lesson coming out of that is that the reform program, I don't think would ever happened in the way it did without the Cultural Revolution. Because the Cultural Revolution was such a shock to many of the people in China, ordinary people, but most particularly in this case, to elite decision makers in the party who'd been humiliated, who'd been thrown out of their role, thrown out of their positions. And they, I think, saw what that one-person authoritarian rule could really do. And it allowed them to open up in a way that didn't happen in the Soviet Union or in Cuba, a realm for debate of why did that go wrong and what are the alternatives? And so in the late 70s, early 80s, it was the most extraordinary period in terms of willingness to raise ideas which had been considered heretical just a couple of years before. Can we talk a little bit about the Chinese leadership system and the ruling apparatus? Because one of the things that struck me that you wrote is that you say it's still a work in progress. You say they're still searching for a way to institutionalize the ruling apparatus. Yeah, sure. I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier about the late 70s, early 80s, it really looked for a while as if it wasn't only going to be more open debate within the party. Perhaps they were also going to take into account more strongly views from society. Remember, this was a period when something called the democracy wall was taking place, where people were publishing quite freely. People were putting up big wall posters, the most famous of which was uh, Democracy, the Fifth Modernization, written by Wei Jingsheng. And at that point, it looked as though maybe the leadership was tottering its way forward to thinking about a, a more open relationship with society. But essentially, Deng Xiaoping came to the conclusion that This was going to be damaging for the economic reform program. And he was most concerned, I think, not about what was happening in the streets, but the debates that were taking place in the party. And he set very strict limits around what would be permissible 
in terms of debate. And there were certain core principles that he was going to hold on to, coming to your question. And those were the core principles of a traditional Leninist party. The democratic centralism, the majority really ruling over the minority, so on and so forth. And so we saw, despite all attempts to the contrary, a reassertion of the kind of pyramid structure within the Communist Party, which inevitably leads to an overemphasis of authority in the hands of the general secretary of the party, or chairman, as that person is sometimes called. And what we've seen, I think, in the current period under Xi Jinping is a much stronger reassertion of the role of the individual over the political system than I think many of us predicted in the last 20 years, that slowly it would slip into some kind of more collective leadership, sharing between the different groups in the party. And that appeared to be happening. So we've seen the sort of reassertion of a pattern which uh, was prevalent under Mao Zedong. That's why I say I think it's a work in progress at a number of levels. One level being that it hasn't really institutionalized effectively a method for succession within the leadership. We all know, as it's been reported, Xi Jinping has abolished the term limits. It looks as though he wants to stay as the paramount leader to 2035. And that, I think, is potentially problematic because it looks stable, but I think ultimately it makes the system appear unstable in terms of what will happen when the succession comes about? Those who are moving up the ladder, do they now feel frustrated because these guys are going to stay around for another 14, 15 years? You know, what's going to happen to my career? So you mentioned democratic centralism. One of the three principal ideas in Chinese democratic centralism is supposed to be the principle of collective leadership. And yet over the history of the party, we've seen the pendulum swing from collective leadership back towards individual rule, party strongmen like Mao and now Xi Jinping. And in fact, some of Xi's writings on China's future have almost been elevated to being treated as co-equal to Mao's. What is behind, you think, this repeated slide towards one-man authoritarian rule. That's certainly been the tendency, and not just in China, but also if one looks at the Soviet Union. And, you know, that appellation of the general secretary or secretary general embodies in it considerable power. And even at the times under collective leadership, where that was more apparent, that person still had an authority vested in that position that no one else would have. I mean, they could launch initiatives without really having to refer to the others. So I think the the way the system works, that sort of compounding of power as you move up, whether one likes it or not, tends to lead towards over-concentration of power, if not in one individual, certainly in a very small group of individuals at the top. And while I think we were seeing something that looked a little bit more like collective leadership under the previous leader, Hu Jintao, where you had more kind of functional representation and it looked as if that elite leadership were reflecting different thought streams within the party, different ideas within the party. That is something that Xi Jinping has clearly pushed back from. And uh, it really is my way or the highway. And part and parcel of that as you rightly said, is a sort of an elevation of Xi Jinping to the kind of heights, perhaps not quite yet the heights of uh, Mao Zedong as being the fount of all wisdom and the authority both for interpreting the present, but also where China will go uh, in the future. And I think it took everybody by surprise. I can just divert just for a moment, because I think when Xi Jinping took power in 2012, and I think if he looked around, China looked a mess 
it had just come out of a power struggle about between an, him or a group around him and another elite leader. You know, society looked to be slipping out of control. Local government seemed to be pursuing its own interests rather than the interests of Beijing. The party didn't necessarily seem reliable. So I think there was a groundwell of support for Xi to come rebuild this structure for us. But I think they were shocked, perhaps, by how quickly he moved to centralize power uh, around himself, effectively, and uh, how quickly he's moved to remove uh, alternative voices at the apex of the decision-making structures. And that's why I hear a lot of frustration espoused by people in China about the way he has uh, centralized that kind of power and uh, the way it has squeezed out some of the alternative voices. Can we talk a little bit about some of the methods of control that the party uses to maintain power and order? One of the things I found very interesting was this notion of the relationships of different groups of the Chinese citizenry with the government as a series of vertical silos. And that communication that goes down from the party to the citizenry and back up from the citizenry to the party is fine, but that any horizontal communication or organization at the grassroots level is viewed as a danger to the state and is immediately repressed. Yes, the Chinese Communist Party really organized its system in terms of vertical silos. So information has to pass up and information passes down. And it tries to organize that across all sectors of the economy and society. And that means that it's very difficult then to challenge the system because you're stuck in a kind of administrative rut that is very difficult to break out of. And as you rightly said, actions or groups that begin to organize horizontally are seen as a threat or a challenge. So for example, you know, if there's a demonstration in one city or there's a demonstration in one rural area, as long as that doesn't link up horizontally across other jurisdictions, it can be easily dealt with. But the fear of the Chinese Communist Party has always been that you might get that linkage across the system out of its uh, move out of its control. You know, it saw that with solidarity in Poland. It saw it and its fear, and I think when it decided to crack down harshly in 1989 with the student demonstrations, was when an autonomous student federation, the Beijing Autonomous Student Federation set up, which was no longer if, you know, if I'm a Peking University student, I'm a member of the Union of Peking University, that goes up to the Beijing city, the Beijing city goes up to the national group and so forth. But now they weren't doing that. They were organizing with brother and sister institutions across Beijing. And then horror of horrors, you then got an autonomous workers' federation, which instead of working within one factory, going up the industrial chain, was also starting to talk to workers in different factories. The most abhorrent thing for them, of course, would have been if the students, perhaps intellectuals also, and workers had come together to form one horizontal set of organizations in the, in the way of Poland, but that didn't happen. It does present a new challenge now, which is, of course, with the internet and social media, because the Chinese Communist Party has always been a, has had a very stringent control over what kinds of information people can see and at what levels they can see that information. You know, I've often talked about it as being an infantilization of the population, you know, teaching or treating your citizens like children. What can you read? What can't you read? And that, of course, has become a major challenge with the internet, which moves quickly, which does move horizontally. And so the Chinese Communist Party has put a lot of effort 
in to try and con- control that sector. We all know about the Great Firewall, which, of course, tries to block information coming in. But it does other things in terms of trying to structure the conversation on the internet. Yeah, they've basically created an internet army of propagandists and message deliverers in order to control the conversation. It's almost as if they saw social media as a new battlefront in a war of ideology and put themselves on a wartime footing. Yes, I mean, you know, there's what is referred to as the 50 cent army. I don't really know if it's true or not, but it is said that, you know, for a positive comment about the party, you get paid 50 cents. So as a result, there's a whole bunch of trolls out there sort of pushing out the party line. But they also use it in a creative way. And again, this goes to things of when you cross or don't cross boundaries. They do monitor it to see what people are thinking about. It is, in a sense, an early warning system for them. You know, if people are complaining about something to do with the environment or something, they do monitor that a lot and pick up on it and often will uh, require local government officials to act in that way. I do want to make another point, though, because it's not only about repression and control. There's two other factors which I think are important. The first one I think is fragile, which is trying to give Chinese citizens a narrative they can buy into that they will believe. And that's why we see nationalism emerging as a strong sentiment uh, and often a card which is played by the Chinese Communist Party. And there what they've done is basically they've tried to identify the party with the nation. So if you're critical of the party, you must by definition be anti-Chinese. You can't be patriotic and critical of the Chinese Communist Party. But related to that, there's a kind of historical storytelling, which we're seeing, of course, with this being the 100th anniversary. And this is of the glorious history of the Chinese Communist Party. And Xi Jinping has spoken frequently now on the need to get a correct party history understood by the people and to criticize what he calls historical nihilism, which, of course, is anything that doesn't agree with that official party history. But the problem is, of course, history changes, nationalism waxes and wanes. But I do think we have to be fair to the Chinese Communist Party that they have produced tremendous economic results. They've created out of that a middle class, which I think is quite faithful and loyal to the party. And they put a lot of investment into providing social policy support. And surveys that we were looking at and doing up until 2016 actually showed that those whose satisfaction had increased most, not with the party, but with government, were the poorest members of Chinese society in urban or rural China, and those living inland rather than the coastal areas. It wasn't to say the satisfaction wasn't rising with the other groups. And I think that's quite telling. Uh, it's a kind of a performance legitimacy. So it's not just the economic growth. It's also that the Chinese leadership have become aware of those social challenges, have invested in them heavily. Uh, for the poorer communities. And that has paid off in enhanced support. But again, of course, that kind of performance legitimacy by its very nature is fragile, because what happens if performance drops? Do the other things hold the party sufficiently together beyond repression? Marxism-Leninism isn't going to cut it. So the question becomes, what else? You talk in the book about how the party tries to, as you put it, develop its problems away, using economic growth as a sort of band-aid to cover up problems like ethnic minorities, like the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, for example. There are over 50 ethnic and ethno-nationalist identifications in China who occupy about 60% of the country's landmass. And that's been a real problem for China, particularly in terms of its record on human rights and its international standing. 
Yeah, I think um, it relates to what you're saying about developing away problems. If you look at the way it's, it's written, you know, once the Uyghurs or Tibetans buy into the idea that the Chinese Communist Party can make you wealthy, these problems will go away. So it is underlying that development discourse. You know, why are they a problem? Well, it's because basically they're not civilized. When do they become civilized? Well, when they become more affluent, and then these problems will melt away. But what is clearly shown, of course, that is not the case. Now, you said there is a considerable number of ethnic minorities, but many of those are more integrated uh, into Chinese society. Chinese state doesn't see them as a problem, hasn't been so repressive in terms of actions against them. What singles out Xinjiang and Tibet, though, and this in a way relates to horizontal rather than vertical, is that they have their own history. And it's a history which is independent not only of the Chinese Communist Party, but is independent of many of the traditional stories about the Chinese empire and the Han majority race within the Chinese empire. And it has an external point of reference, the Dalai Lama, of course, uh, with respect to Tibet, groups across the border in the old Turkestan areas in the northwest of China. And that makes them in many ways a threat to the Chinese state because they don't buy into the narrative which the Chinese Communist Party is telling, whether that's the old narrative of class struggle or whether it's the current narrative, we are the inheritors of that glorious tradition. And so the Communist Party has moved to essentially, I think, make the decision that they want to destroy that culture and independence. And while we talk about, you know, the prison camps or internment camps, China eventually was a force to admit that things were happening there, but they talked about them as retraining, re-education camps and so on. And that clearly shows that what they want to do is eradicate, as far as they can, the identity to Uyghur culture and replace it by adherence to a narrative told out of Beijing. And that clearly has not been successful to date. I suspect moving forward that most historical parallels or experiences we have also show that it will not be successful over the long term. Another theme the party has used to foster unity and uniformity of thought has been blaming outside agitators and accusing other countries of meddling anytime there's a problem. Well, that still exists, but now China has also embarked on a major military buildup. And Xi has said that by mid-century, his goal is for China to be a co-equal military superpower with any other superpower in the world. Now, Given this historical use of the outsider as a way to maintain internal stability and this nationalistic military buildup, if you're an international leader, how do you engage with China in a productive way? And this is crucial because we're entering a period of time when, because of climate and things like pandemics, it's a time when we need international cooperation more than ever. You have to remember the Chinese Communist Party is infallible. They cannot possibly make a mistake. So if something goes wrong, that means either it's people in the party have led everybody astray, or it's those damn foreigners. And what the leadership has always had, but the current leadership has been pushing particularly strongly, and I find it's actually having quite a strong impact amongst younger people, is this idea of 100 years of humiliation at the hands of the foreigners. And that has been, I think, a sort of a galvanizing, a mobilizing mechanism 
to get support uh, for the leadership. And I think it's been effective. Yeah, nothing beats a good old victimization narrative. No, that's right. And, you know, we had a period of time up until I would say maybe 15 years ago, where China did feel it was still vulnerable, where it was weak, and where it wanted to learn much more from the world outside. And so that victimization narrative tended to drop somewhat. But particularly since the global financial crisis of 08, 09, I think the Chinese leadership decided, well, you know, maybe what we're doing is better. And then you see increasingly the victimization narrative coming to the fore. And it has, as you said, consequences in terms of its external actions and attitude. We see it with the much more aggressive pushback by Chinese diplomats. As you said, the assertion that China will become a major global power by 2050. But then I think there's a number of dimensions to that. If you really want to be a global player, can you rely on a narrative of humiliation? Does that work? Does that bring you respect around the world. So I suspect something in that narrative is going to have to change. It's probably going to have to shift more to the other part of the narrative you're talking about, that we will be a major power by 2050. Again, you get back to measurable issues. Can they actually achieve that? What does it mean? So on and so forth. Okay, so how do we engage? Well, the basic starting point has to be China is a reality, and it's probably not going away. And that means that for the sake of global challenges, we do have to find ways to deal with it. How do we do that? Well, China is not opposed to everything in the global order. And parts of the global order have been extremely beneficial to China. In many ways, and I wrote this almost 20 years ago, you know, when much of the rest of the world was getting beyond the idea of a Westphalian state, China is becoming one of the strongest advocates of the idea of a Westphalian state and so on and so forth. And that's part of the narrative that it is pushing out there. Defense of state interests, not interfering in, interfering in the affairs of others, even though it does, of course. But what it does mean is that there are certain parts out there in the global order that China has benefited from. There are parts of that global order that it knows it can only achieve its own objectives by cooperation. You mentioned, of course, climate change is, is clearly one of them. Even though the, the COVID pandemic has been disastrous in terms of cooperation, that's another clear area for where one might uh, want to think about working together. And then there's a whole set of challenges that I think of in terms of what are new global public goods. That seems to me where one can try and engage China and other nations, because the institutional architecture is not fixed yet. I mean, part of this humiliation, part of the ranting against the foreigners is that, you know, well, that post-Second World War order, that was all built up by the US and its allies. We weren't part of it. It doesn't favor us. We needed to shift in our favor. Well, the U.S. has made it clear that it's not going to make those shifts. It wasn't going to do it with the IMF. It wasn't going to do it in a number of other organizations. But if you think about major challenges around the global commons, for example, water shortages, climate change, as we said, uh, those are areas which will need collaboration, and they are in China's interests to cooperate. Global regulation, what is going to happen with cross-border financial flows, uh, for example, the rise of digital currency. So... You know, I think the U.S. has to think carefully, and I see that emerging more and more, you know, from the rhetoric which has been put forward that 
China is an enemy everywhere. It's an all-out confrontation. You're beginning to see more and more voices saying, well, even if that is the case, we have to parse that in terms of where is there going to be competition? Where is the conflict where we have to set guardrails? And where are those areas that still we might be able to push forward for the benefit of humanity at large in terms of cooperation and collaboration? You know, and I'm sorry, last thing I would just say on that, we also have to be realistic. Beijing is not going to change U.S. domestic behavior, and Washington is not going to change Beijing's domestic behavior, no matter how much we might like that idea. Do you see another adaptation in the near-term future for the Chinese Communist Party, maybe one that would be forced by world events? Yeah, I mean, the only things that are going to force China to change are when it sees that change in its own best interests. So perhaps eventually the pressure around trade, the pushback on Chinese investment may get it to reconsider its practices. I mean, that's still going to take a lot of work. And it's only going to adapt domestically when there's sufficient domestic pressures uh, to push it to change. Is that potential there? I think the answer is yes, but it's limited. I don't think we should think that uh, we're going to go march forward to some liberal democratic nirvana in the near future. But it has considerable domestic problems. Everybody talks about the aging of Chinese society. There's another big challenge, which is, you know, can China really move out from the upper middle income trap to being a more affluent society? And Scott Rosell has written in a book, Invisible China, uh, together a colleague, quite interestingly on that, where he basically says, look, getting the last 20 million out of absolute poverty is easier than getting 900 million people out of low income. And there's a massive set of challenges around that that we have to think about. That's where I see potential adaptability and change coming. And I see it maybe moving from what we see at the moment with this recentralization of power and a hard authoritarianism to something that goes back to what we saw, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, which is more flexible, more adaptable, allowing more local initiative and innovation and uh, less repressive as society. But I still think it would be in the realms of a soft authoritarianism But of course, you know, uh, we have to keep open all scenarios. None of us expected 1989 demonstrations to happen. None of us expected the Soviet Union to collapse when it collapsed. Many people expected the Chinese Communist Party to collapse, and it hasn't collapsed. So, you know, social scientists are not great at predictions. You know, we we have to leave it to the historians to tell us why it happened. But of course, by that time, it's going to be too late. The book is called From Rebel to Ruler, 100 Years of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's out next month from Harvard University Press. Thank you, Tony. That was very enlightening, and I really appreciate your taking the time. Well, thank you, Ralph, and thanks for the questions. It was great. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. And if you'd like more information about other recent episodes or to learn more about our podcast, please visit us at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. 